Lord, this opportunity to go through your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you are still alive today and you still desire to speak to your people. And Father, we come uh, expectant. Father, may you help us to put aside the things which would get in the way of us meeting with you today, that would get in the way of us hearing from you. The distractions of, of our current week, Lord, may you help us to lift our eyes off of ourself and to lift it onto you. May you guide us through this time. May it truly be of you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, and uh, Naomi will bring one to you. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and Naomi will bring one to you. Uh, Last week, if you were here, um, we were looking uh, at Luke, and we were looking at the account of the two men on the road to Emmaus, and how Jesus shows up and gives the Bible study of a lifetime. Uh, And if you remember... We read, and I'll just read, quickly read one verse from Luke 24:27, And this is what we read last week. Uh, and so Luke 24, verse 27, it says this, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. You see, it is just after Jesus rises from the dead. He dies on the cross for our sins and he rises again. Uh, and then he, <laughs> he meets these people who are on their way to Emmaus. And they, and they initially don't recognize him. They don't see that it is Jesus. Uh, and through the conversation, uh, which we kind of covered last week, right at the end of that, we see how Jesus gives this amazing Bible study. And he's like, look, the scriptures, the Old Testament that you have, it's all about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. And this isn't the only time that Jesus has said this. Uh, in, if you want to briefly turn me to John chapter 5 and verse 36. You see, Jesus has, has said this before. He's talked about this before. This is not the first time he's talked about how the scriptures is all about Jesus. Um, and we see here, and we'll go from verse 36. So chapter 5 of John 36. And this is Jesus uh, addressing the Jews and the religious leaders at the time. And he says this, verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. And uh, John's, that is, as in John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So here he's saying, look, the very works that I do, the very actions that I do, they point to the fact that I have been sent by the Father. And in 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Here he's saying, look, you don't have God's word abiding in you, remaining in you, because you do not believe in Jesus. And 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. 
and these are they which testify of me. So once again, Jesus is like, look, scripture is pointing to me. And in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus offers life. I do not receive honour from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honour from one another and do not seek the honour that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And here, Jesus is like, look, 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 Moses, when he was writing the parts of the Old Testament, he was writing about me. This book is pointing to me. And that, and, that, and that should change the way that we see and read through the Old Testament. As we go through the Old Testament, we should be looking for Jesus. We should be remembering that it's all about Jesus. And, it, and it's so important. And over the next coming few weeks, the Wednesday study, we're going to be looking at Joshua. We're going to be going through the book of Joshua when PT gets back. And as we go through it, let us keep our eyes fixed. Where's Jesus in this? This is all pointing to, this is all about Jesus. And today we're just going to focus on one example of that, one of many examples. We're going to look at an account in, in uh, the life of Moses and the Israelites, which is a foreshadow of the gospel. It's like a picture of the gospel. Uh, and it's so important when we're sort of thinking about this. It's so important that... That we know and remember that we never grow out of the gospel. There can often be a danger of, ah, oh, the gospel, the Jesus died, Jesus died for my sins uh, and rose again, uh, you know. Uh, and we, <laughs> we can often belittle it if we're not careful. We can often, it's like, okay, yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that. Give me something else, give me something else, give me something new. But the thing is, we never outgrow the gospel. Yes, the, <laughs> the gospel is simple for all of us to understand, praise God. But as we see the gospel more and more. We actually learn more and more about its depth. Um, a pastor in America called Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z. It is not the first step in a stairway of truths. It is more the hub of God's will of truth. It is not the first step in a stairway of truth. It is more like the hub of God's will of truth. We never outgrow the gospel. Never outgrow it. And what we may know intellectually, until it, it, it can't just stop there. It can't stop at the intellectual level. It has to go deeper. It has to go to a heart level. A guy called J.D. Greer says it like this in his book called The Gospel. Being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. Okay, so being able to, to say what the gospel is is one thing. But having its truth captivate your soul is quite another. Having the truth of the gospel touch your very heart 
is very different to knowing it intellectually. And this is my prayer. As we recap and get to see a picture of the gospel, my prayer is that it would not just affect our intellect, but it would affect our heart. As we saw last week, when we see how these disciples, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, these disciples became world changers. The reason that happened was because of the gospel. And it wasn't because they knew it intellectually, but it's because the gospel affected their hearts that it moved them to live a radically different life. So the text we're going to be looking at is going to be in Numbers 21. So turn with me to Numbers 21. And as I say, this is, uh, this is taken um, and this is focusing the point of uh, when Moses is leading the people of Israel. Uh, and here we come to this. So Exodus chapter 21 and verse 1 to 8. So here, here, is, here is Moses. He has led the people out of Egypt. He's led them out of captivity. And at this point in Israel's history, they are, they are wandering around in the wilderness. And this is what we read. So chapter 21, verse 1. We'll go from here, just to get a bit of background. The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Aphraim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So here is Israel and the Canaanites come and they take some of Israel's people prisoners. And in verse 2, So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Horma. And in verse 4, then. So quickly, the, 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 the kind of the, the backdrop to this, the background is, is this people, the people of Israel are attacked, their people are taken captive. And they pray to God, they make a vow to God, and God gives them the victory. Keep this in mind, this is, this is God has given Israel the victory, and then we read, this is what happens. Verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the sea, to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. 
And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Here we see a picture, a picture of, we see an example of Israel's rebellion. (laughs) How Israel rebels against God and there is judgment for that. There is judgment for our rebellion. But then we also see how God provides a way out. And we'll begin to unpack this kind of verse by verse as we go through this. So kind of starting from verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Sin is always a heart issue. It's interesting that it starts from the heart they became very discouraged. It's always from the heart. God sees our heart, not just our actions, but our very heart behind our actions. Sin is not just what we do, but sin is also the attitude of our heart. A heart which is against God. Despite all that he has done, despite all that he has given, a heart that is rebellious to him. Sin always starts from the heart. And we see how, how Jesus, he, he, he explains this. If we look back to the Beatitudes, he takes the commandments. And he's like, no, no, you're, you're missing the point. It's not just about what you do. It's about the heart behind what you do. It's not just, uh, you know, when he says, you know, when you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery in the heart, which is just as simple as adultery of the hand. You see, our sin starts in the heart, and it's only a matter of time before it makes its way to its hands, to our hands. It starts in the heart, and when the opportunity comes, it makes its way to its hands. We must always be wary of this one question, where is our heart? On my iPad, I have this, this cool little background which I got from, um, from a ministry in America called Triple X Church. And it says, where's your heart at? And it's a constant reminder to me. Where is my heart at? Does Jesus have my heart? Or is my heart, <laughs> is my heart cold to him? It's my heart turning away from him. And remember, it all starts from the heart and it makes its way to its hands. And we see here in verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. You see, it starts from the heart. And it's important to remember because it's important to remember the background of this. It's important to remember all that God has done for the people of Israel up to this point. The people of Israel have been in slavery, have been in captivity, and God sets them free. He sets them free from that captivity for a purpose. Not just that they would be free, but they would be free to to worship him, that they would be his God and he would be their people. And he has promised to take them to a promised land. And we see within this being set free and then finally entering the promised land, we see time and time again Israel being disobedient. Time and time again standing up to God where God has blessed them with so much. And it's the same with us. God 
created us to be in relationship with him. He loves us. And time and time again, we turn our back on him. Time and time again, we say, I want to do it my way, God. I, I think I've, I've got this sorted out. I don't need you. And our sin is always rebellion against God. First and foremost, our sin is against him. And then it makes its way out to other people. As you see, they stood up against God and then they stood up against Moses. And this is what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Sin makes us forget God's original purpose for us. You see here, they're like, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What was God's original purpose in bringing them out of Egypt? If you turn with me briefly to Exodus chapter 6. And God says this. In verse 2, Exodus 6, 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Here's the key part. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Here God is saying, look, I took you out so that you would be my people and I would be your God. And they forget it. Their sin has blinded them. That they forget that God's purpose and God's desire was not just to have them die in a wilderness, but it was that he would be their God and their people. And so many times, again and again, they turn their back on that. They turn their back on that. Sin has blinded them. And we see how that even their arguments against God doesn't make sense. <laughs> listen to this, listen to this, and see if you can spot the, 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 the kind of the contradictory nature of this statement, okay? So this is what they say. For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. It's like, well, well, I thought you said there's no food, but you loathe this food that you do have, which has been given to you by as a gift. You see, sin blinds us. It, it blinds us to what God has actually done for us and what God desires for us. God desires our ultimate good, which is to be with him, to be his people, for us to be his God. He desires life for us. He desires joy for us. 
He provides for us. And yet, as we see the people of Israel, they stand up against him and say, you know what, God, no, 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 <laughs> no, I'm going to do it my way. What are you, why are you doing this? And they, they rebel against God. They stand up against God. And all sin is rebellion against God. And there is judgment for sin. And here we see here, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. God is a God of justice. He sends judgment and when he does, it is holy and it is terrifying. God judges the people They are a guilty people. And when we first read this, and we often see in accounts throughout Scripture, there will be moments where we see God's judgment. We see God's judgment upon people for their sin. And sometimes our natural, simple reaction is to, it it kind of, it gets something, it kind of, it it ruffles us a bit. We're like, whoa, 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 what's what's going on here? We're like, and and sometimes we are in danger sinfully of, of questioning God. And being like, well, I, I, actually, I think you may have been a bit too harsh in this one, God. You know, I think I would have chosen a slightly different punishment. You know, I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think you may have just gone a bit overboard. Uh, it's so important that we remember that everything God does, everything He executes, every judgment He gives is one which is fair. Every punishment that He gives is worthy of the crime. And in those moments where we're like, but God, that doesn't fit in with my moral code, we need to remember that God has a higher moral code than us. We are temporary and he is eternal. He's been around for a lot longer than us. He knows how these things work. (laughs) And the truth is that when we, when we don't, the truth is that we just don't realise how damnable our sin really is. We don't realise how sinful we are before a holy God. When God does judgment, it is true, it is just. And, and whenever I come across a passage where I'm like, but God, I think you may have been a bit too overboard, God has to continually rein me in and be like, no, no, Daniel, I am just. No, 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 Daniel, my morality is better than yours. And think about it, we can't even keep the Ten Commandments. Ten commandments, ten simple rules, and we can't even keep them. (laughs) And we're like, yeah, God, I have a better morality than you. In those moments, I'm reminded of Job. uh, And Job 38, turn with me to this, please. Because it is so humbling, this passage. And we see God answers Job. (laughs) Man, and listen to what he says to Job. In Job 38, and we'll see how far we get with this, because this is a, yeah, so we'll see how we go. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so first of all, right, God turns up in a whirlwind. You know something's going down when God shows up in a whirlwind. And he says this to Job. Who is this who darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself are like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So here, God is saying to Job, look, would you question me? But, okay, okay, no, no, before you question me, let me question you. Answer me this, Job. 
And in those moments where we come across scripture where we're like, well, God, I wouldn't have done this this way. Remember this passage. God is greater. God is wiser than us. And listen to this. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors. When I said this is far you may come but no further. And here you proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And God continues on in a similar vein. Here God reminds us, look, look, look my judgments are just. The, the, the punishment always fits the crime. But... Not only is God a God of justice, but God is also a God of mercy and a God of love, as we'll soon find out. Turn with me back to Numbers and verse 7. So, here we see here, God sends judgment. There are these serpents, and the serpents are biting people, and, and people are beginning to die. And in verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Once again, the people affirm their sin is for, first and foremost against God. And here we see they repent, they turn, they agree with God, they, have, they agree with God that they have sinned and they turn. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes people have to hit rock bottom before they turn to Christ. <laughs> uh, I often, we often get to see this as we kind of uh, get to do a Bible study on, on a Thursday with, with guys kind of recovering from, from drug and alcohol addiction. And occasionally we see people, they kind of come into the program for a bit and then they'll go back out and then they'll come back in and they go back out. And even the guys there uh, will testify that sometimes they just have to hit the bottom before, before they realise their sin, before they realise how much they've fallen before they realise how much in need of Jesus and his grace they are. So we see the people repent. And this is how God responds. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So here, Jesus God hears their cries. 
And he provides a way out. And it's really interesting looking at this. You see, God doesn't seem to... It's really interesting. He just says, make a make a gold serpent, and if you look at it, you shall live. There is no sort of, okay, first of all, I need you to do this, to do this. Um, I want you to pray five times, um, and then want you to... um, uh, I want you to walk around the city. I want you to then sing a few times. I don't want you to do this. Uh, and I want you to say ten Hail Marys. And then uh, there's, there's none of this. There's none. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. It is simply, if you look at this, you'll be saved. There is no, it doesn't seem like there's nothing. God doesn't seem to make the Israelites, he doesn't go to the Israelites, try and earn this back, try and pay for it. He, he just offers it. He doesn't say, look, okay, once you look at this, now you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. And then after that, if you paid me back, then, you know, I think I'll let you live. It's just simply, uh, I accept your repentance. If you look at this, you'll be saved. And now, the only thing which is reliant on the people, you see, Jesus has provided the way of salvation. If you look at this, you'll be saved. The only thing which is reliant on people is for them by faith to look. Think about it. They are in a nation of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, some people would be on the further outside of the camp, so they would actually have to they'd have to walk to go and see the snake. Think about it. They would have heard through people this this rumor that if they look at the snake, they'll be saved. And at that moment, would they have the faith to accept that? And go to look at the snake, or will they be like, ha, look at a snake, you're going to be kidding me. Yeah, if it is that easy. No, 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 forget that. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna try and figure out my own way of saving myself. You see, all they had to do was have enough faith to look. And we see, so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived Here we see Jesus provides a way out. And he says, all you need to do is look. Jesus refers to this passage in John chapter 3 and verse 14. And it's quite interesting that he would refer, you know, this is is just before what is known as the most famous... (laughs) And most likely one of the most quoted Bible verses in the whole of the Bible. And Jesus says this just two verses beforehand. In verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, we, just like the Israelites, are guilty. (laughs) And here Jesus is like, look, that account that you read about in Moses, that's, that's a foreshadow of me. That's a picture of me, just as the snake was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But not on a pole, but on a cross. So that anybody who believes in him, if anybody would just look to Jesus, 
they would be saved. If anybody would just believe, they would be saved. Here we see the gospel. We see that just like the Israelites, we are guilty. We are sinful people. (laughs) But Jesus provides a way out. And I love how Jesus doesn't just forget about our sin. He doesn't say, and, and this includes both the sin that we commit and the sin committed against us. Jesus doesn't just go, okay, uh, it's not a big deal, forget about it. Jesus is like, no, no, your sin is a big deal. Your sin is so serious. It does have to be paid for. Somebody has to pay for it. Justice must be done. But because I loved you so much, the punishment which you deserve, the punishment which I deserved, Jesus says, I'm going to take it on the cross. I'm going to bear that punishment. I'm going to be that way of salvation. And this is all you need to do. You can't earn it. You can't, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't earn it and you can't pay it back. You can't save yourself. The only thing you need to do, just as the Israelites, is look. (laughs) Jesus says that, Put your faith in me, believe in me, look to me, and you will be saved. And then Jesus goes on to say this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the good news that we believe in. That we can't earn our salvation, that we could do nothing to earn what Jesus has done, but by faith we accept it. And when the gospel really affects our hearts, it changes the way that we live. When we realise the depth of our sin and how much we deserved that punishment. It changes how we live. And the perfect example of this, as we looked at yesterday, is the early, it's the early believers. It's the early Christian church. It was the gospel. This good news that radically changed these people. <laughs> that took fishermen and, and people who once fled. Who once fled when, when, people came, when they came to arrest Jesus, they fled. They abandoned him. They betrayed him. The gospel changed these people. That they were full on for this message. That Jesus died for our sins and rose again. To the point that they were willing to die for it. And this is my prayer for me and for us. Is that we would get this. 
I think of my own life and I think of my own testimony and how growing up in a Christian home, I, I heard the gospel week after week. I, I was kind of trying to do the maths, okay? I, came, I became a Christian at the age of 10. Uh, and I was, you know, pretty much as soon as I came out of hospital, I was in church. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, okay, trying to do the maths. Let's just say for five of those years, uh, I, you know, if I at least heard a, a gospel message once a week, 52, let's say 50 because I'm really bad at maths. Let's say 50, 50, 50 gospel messages a year. Times that by five, you can do the maths. How much? Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> 250. Think about it. I heard, I must have heard the gospel several hundred times. I mean, that's, that's a generous estimate. Uh, and it would have been either the gospel or some, something pointing towards Jesus. Um, I knew it intellectually. Now, I'm pretty sure I could tell people, you know. But it was only once it, it, it reached my heart, when it became clear, it is like I can't. I can't even remember what the preacher spoke on. It was, it was about almost 15 years ago this summer. It was at a Christian camp. I was away from home, and all I remember is this: it was a, a guy was preaching. I don't know who. I can't remember his name. I don't even know what he was preaching about. Um, <laughs> but at some point he gave the gospel, and at some point it, it just finally became clear that I was a sinner. Uh, and I was in need of Jesus. And then he just gave me the opportunity. He was like, who, who wants to follow this Jesus? Who wants to give their life to this Jesus? Who wants to accept this gift? And I said, yeah, I want to accept this. <laughs> the beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't need to understand everything. You don't need to understand it all. I mean, you don't need to, <laughs> to be saved. You just need to understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took that punishment which you and I deserved and he rose again on that third day. And now he calls us to follow him. He calls us to walk with him. You see, that relationship which God originally intended for us was severed by our sin. But because of Jesus, he brings us back. That relationship we had, which was that relationship we were created for, which was marred by sin, because of Jesus, he is that middleman, that mediator. He now brings the two together. He brings us, he reconciles us. But for me, 15 years ago, it doesn't stop there. The gospel made its way to my heart, but it still needs to make its way to my heart again and again and again. Because we do not deserve this grace. (laughs) But because God so loved us, he laid down his life for us. And that's my prayer. It's like, Lord, make this real to my heart again. Again and again. Don't make, may my heart not become cold to it. Because this is the motivation. If we're motivated by anything else in our service of Jesus, we will dry up. If our motivation is to try and earn something, well, it's what we pay for. We can't earn it. If our motivation is to, is to try and please other people, well, uh, when <laughs> people are people. They're going to fail us. But if our motivation 
is out of just love and gratitude. Now that is something radically different. Radically different to anything else we see in the world, any other religion in the world, where it is, if you do this, if you work this hard, then you might be able to make it. I remember sitting down once with a a Muslim uh, and we were kind of, it was a very interesting conversation. (laughs) And I remember at, at several parts, I was like just saying to him, I was like, you, you don't have any security. How do you know that you are good enough? <laughs> How do you know that you've done enough? And I remember in those moments, just a couple of moments, there would just be that silence. That just kind of like, he just wouldn't say anything. And then he'd kind of go into his other point and he'd be like, oh, what about this, what about this? And I'm like, well, no, 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 but how do you know you've done enough? And this is what Jesus says to us. You haven't done enough and you can't do enough. But I have done enough. And that frees us. That frees us to make mistakes. (laughs) That frees us to go for it. To live for Jesus. I want to follow you. I know I'm going to fall, but when I fall, I know your grace and forgiveness is there to pick me up. I know I can step out because you've already paid for it. And there's nothing I can do to earn it back. And, it, and then, it, it, it then, once we realise that, it then makes us stop focusing on what we can do for Jesus and just focus on actually knowing him. It's not about paying him back. It's not about doing service. But it's actually, okay, Lord, I just, wanna, I just want to know you. I want to know this Jesus who gave his life for me. And as we begin to know him, as we begin to walk with him, we see that we begin to change. We see that the gospel changes people. And think about it, as I kind of talked about a bit of last week, 2,000 years ago this happened. This event happened, the gospel. And I love how God enters human history. It's an event, it's a physical bam, this happens. 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this Jesus. This Jesus is still saving people. This Jesus is still alive. He's still at work. He's still calling people to himself. This simple message, this gospel, has survived empires. It has survived changes of culture. It has survived everything. Because it is true. Because it is powerful. And because the gospel changes people's lives. So guys, would you pray with me as we bring this to a close? Father, I just thank you for this reminder of this good news. That you died on the cross for our sins. And that for those, for anybody who simply puts their faith in you, who believes in you, who looks to you, will be saved from that judgment. That we deserved. Because you took it upon yourself. Father, may we never tire of this good news. May you continually remind us of this good news. And may it not just affect us intellectually, but may it affect our hearts. Father, forgive me, forgive us for the times where our heart has become cold to your gospel. We've, we've become used to it. We've become, oh, it's just, you know, oh yeah, I've heard that before, I've heard that before. 
forgive us that we would be just so shallow with it. By your Holy Spirit, may we treasure this gospel. May we treasure this good news and meditate on it day by day. That you died on the cross for our sins and you rose again on the third day. You are alive and you call us to put our faith and our trust in you. Lord, may we never tire of this good news. In your name, Jesus. Amen.